Howdy, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Greg McEwen. He's a public speaker, leadership and business strategist, and an author. We're talking about how to make life effortless. Is the toughest path always the right one? Is the more important thing is the harder it has to be? Or is there a way to make the execution of what matters most in your life a little easier? That is the topic of Greg's new book, Effortless. So today, expect to learn why the usefulness of working more runs out quicker than you might think, how effortless relates to essentialism, why burnout is not a badge of honour, how to decide what done looks like, how to build the courage to be rubbish, how to get the highest return on your least effort, and much more. Greg's first book, Essentialism, is the place to start that I tell people to begin with when they're starting their self-development and productivity learning career. But I do think that that book falls short in certain areas. You can get rid of all of the non-essentials from your life and yet still have too much on your plate. So this is where effortless slots in. It allows you to see that working harder, doing more, banging your head against the grindstone isn't always necessarily or even often the correct solution. I really like the stuff that Greg goes through today. And if you're a fan of essentialism, you're going to adore this. If you're not a fan of essentialism, you need to go and pick it up because it is a fantastic book. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern But now it's time for the wise and wonderful Greg McEwen. Greg McEwen, welcome to the show. It's great being with you, Chris. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back indeed. Last time we were talking, you were in workout gear. Do you remember? I kind of live in workout gear. Yeah, that's my <laughs> um that's kind of my Yeah, but you were thing. you were you were like cut off at the shoulders. Oh, it was boiling hot, that's why. It was unbelievably hot. I couldn't bear the heat in Newcastle for the first time ever. And I was overdressed too. I was it's in the pandemic, but I could, you know you can take you can take the Englishman out of England, but not how do you say that? But not the Englishman out of the man. That's not really a great quip there. But but uh, but I was dressed like I had a jacket on. I was like overdressed for California, and for some reason I was still in that mode. Of, 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 so we were anyway. It's great to be with you. That's what I'm trying to get to. Good. Well, we're talking about a new book today, Effortless. Very, very excited for this to come out. I'm a huge fan of essentialism. It's one of the foundational books that I give to people when they ask what I want to get into personal development. What what should I read? And essentialism's there. So 
What's the Thank story you. of how you came to realize that you needed to write this new book? Well, partially it was essentialism's fault. Um, you know, essentialism changed everything for me. I'm traveling all over. I'm teaching all over the world, and I want to be doing that. I'm not just the father of essentialism by that point. I'm father of four children with a lot of responsibilities, and uh, and and I really started finding myself with this question of like, what do you do if there are just too many essentials? <laughs> if you've stripped away from your life the non-essentials, I mean, I had chosen not to write another book. I had chosen not to do a workshop business. I'd put on hiatus the, uh, the Stanford class that I'd co-created, all in the spirit of removing non-essentials. But what happens if what you're left with, in fact, is still more than you can do? And in the midst of thinking about that, I uh, find out that my one of my daughters is um, was literally having a massive tonic clonic seizure at home while I'm traveling, and that just pushed me over the edge, really. And you know, felt really like I sort of hit a wall, or rather, the walls were closing in around me. And I, I found myself saying, "Well, now what?" Like essentialism takes you to a certain place. I think it's necessary, but I started to feel it was necessary, but insufficient. And I set on a journey really, first of all, just to maintain my own sanity and health. Uh, and then the same for my own family. For what do you do when life is really hard? Life is hard for everyone. And in hundreds of different ways. Well, what do you do in that situation? It's important. Life feels hard. How can you make progress in that situation? Do you just give up on the essentials? I think a lot of people do that. Uh, that was a tempting thing for me in that environment. Or do you find an easier path? And if I use George Eliot's you know, idea on that for a moment, I mean, what do we live for if not to make life easier for each other? And so at first it was for me, my own family, for our business, but also now for other people. Uh, and, and it turns out that this book is coming out at a time that I think that may be especially timely uh, because of the year of the pandemic. Um, and I just think people are burned out everywhere or on the edge of being burned out. And so you know, this this other part, this other way of doing things suddenly seems to have the power of relevancy. I felt like I was maybe before like a um, like a weightlifter who's lifting with their back or a swimmer who's not breathing properly or a baker who's kneading by hand. It's like you can do the right things, but if you do them in the wrong way, things will be harder than they need to be. And so the, the positive way of saying that is that when you can't push any harder, you can find an easier path, a more effortless path, and, and there's practical principles and practices for how to do that, and that's what this book is all about. It feels to me a little bit like effortless is a delivery mechanism. So if you had essentialism as a philosophy, as something that was conceptual, perhaps you could call that like the virus but the delivery mm -hmm. mechanisms still needed to be there, a way that allowed you to integrate this as easily as possible into the system. Um, 
Yeah, it, it it's it's very interesting thinking about the challenges that you go through in Effortless because so many of them are so common to people that live lives of productivity, talking about burnouts, talking about this bizarre um, preconception we have that things have to be hard. The right way is the hard way, this Puritan work ethic, so much stuff. So I want to I want to get into that. You you split the approach up into three sections. So you've got effortless state, effortless action, and effortless results. So effortless state first, what's that? Well, if you, you put it this way, some of the, the mystics would describe there being only two states in the world. You either have a state of suffering uh, or what I'm calling here uh, an effortless state. And really, those are your two options. Um, when the, the, the state of suffering is where you're exhausted mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, you're, you're carrying grudges, you're angry in the world, you're so tired, you start to resent everyone and anything that's coming at you. And it's just such an, that that state produces a whole set of actions and results. Um, and it, none of that is optimal. Uh, you 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 end up for a lot of overachievers. They respond to those challenges by pushing even harder, and they just get to the idea that everything in life has to be hard. And if it's not hard, it can't be important. And it, you just get down this sort of hyperactivity path, and it doesn't produce the results that you want. So that's that's sort of option A. Um, option B is that an effortless state is when you are physically rested. Uh, you're emotionally free. Um, I, I was talking with uh, Tim Ferriss on his podcast just recently, and I asked him, I said, how much, what percentage of your mental and emotional energy have you used, like have been used up by anger and grudges? And he said, from the age of 15 to 30, he estimates probably between 60 and 70% of his mental and emotional energy was used up on grudges and anger. Wow. Can you imagine? I mean, that's just, that is just mad. But, but you, you, you can see that's why effortless state is the beginning of the model. That's where, why, why this is so vital is that you can't control all the hard things that happen to you, right? For sure not. All right. I've, I've used one example for me in, in just summary when my daughter suddenly has what turned out to be, massive neurological problems over the like a multi-year experience um that change her personality her physicality everything right like you can't change that at first we couldn't do anything about it so what you can do is you can make it as easy as possible to handle it you can make sure that you don't make it worse by the way you respond to it and and I think the first thing you do when those things happen in life, when the challenges come, is that is that by getting into the right state about them, you can start to remain in a creative state, an open state, a grateful state, um, and, and that will put you in a better position to be able to know the right action to take uh, and, and therefore increase your chances of getting good results out of it. The biggest identification, the one that really struck home with me, is the fact that people assume that the right way is inevitably the harder one. It's right. such a common mindset. And I've seen this in myself so much throughout my uh, 
as my vintage has increased uh, as an entrepreneur, um, I've managed to cast it off. But every young entrepreneur knows this. They they realize that hard work can get you some success. Right. Then they which, associate, which I agree with. Yeah. Then they associate the success with the hard work itself. Then they get rid of the success and just leave the hard work there. I remember I used <laughs> to I used to feel guilty if we'd had a successful event at one of our nights if it had gone well, but I hadn't suffered. I used to feel guilty mm. because I right. thought, no, it, it, it should be more difficult than this if I haven't stayed up until five in the morning doing the accounts, if there hasn't been some sort of catastrophe that I've had to deal with. I think it, it must have felt like um, I've got headroom above me. I could have done more somewhere. I could have, and it's like, are you telling me that you're complaining because things went well? Looking mm-hmm. back with perspective, that's what it was. But yes, yeah, so many people assume that the right way is inevitably the harder one. I remember somebody saying to me, a fan of essentialism, they said, essentialism is so great, but it will be the hardest. It should come with a warning. This will be the hardest thing that you'll ever do. And for a while, I just absorbed that like, oh, yeah, I should tell people that. And actually, for a while, I did. And then I thought, what what madness this is? What, why do I just have to assume that it has to be the hard path? In fact, I was saying that even though the last quarter of essentialism is is already devoted to the idea of how do you make execution of what matters most easier and and i thought that that's just an assumption that just lives everywhere and basically 100% of the time it remains unquestioned just started a new uh, asked to be on a committee this uh, this council and uh, this this new app that they're trying to create for uh, for youth all over the world. They think it can make a difference to millions of people, a positive difference. And and at the end, they say, well, now listen, this is so important. It's going to be really, really hard to make this happen. And, and no one said anything. And in previous versions of me, I wouldn't have said anything either or thought anything. But now with this new mindset, I, I just, why does it have to be? Does it have to be? In fact, it's interesting because in the same speech, they said when they were asked themselves to lead this effort, the person that had asked them to do it said, how do you feel? And they said, well, yes, I'm willing to do it, but we're like with fear and trembling. And they said, well, they said, well, hopefully with some joy though too, right? And that's the thing is this idea that the more important it is, the harder it has to be. Think how limiting that is. It's one of the things that I think people can do to immediately start applying essentialism and effortless is basically identify one thing that's essential that you know if you did it consistently would be a a game changer for you. And then the second question is only two questions. The second is how can you make that effortless? Because it interrupts all the normal mind flow of like, okay, yes, I want to do this, but it's big, hard lifting. I've got to get to the top of Everest. Yeah, but how do you make it effortless? Oh, you could get a helicopter to the top of Everest. Oh, that. I was just talking to somebody who works in special ops. Well, they did for years. They're out of special ops now, but been in military for years and years. I mean, that's a place that emphasizes all the time that you have to work harder, 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 harder to achieve results, right? That, that is a theme. And again, there's a place for it, but it, it runs out of its usefulness as a strategy early on. And he told me this story about when they, they used to, so he's, he's deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they used to be responsible in the special ops team to get through you know, some metal door to find some value, high value asset, someone on the other side. 
And how they would do that is they would put explosives on the, the um, hinges. They blow it, and that's how you get through. Well, now you've got a ho hole in the wall. Uh, you, you have a lot of blowback from that. You've let the entire neighborhood know you're there. Not, yeah, that could be a very dangerous proposition as well. You can hurt both the soldiers and the people on the other side. Innocent people can get hurt. So this is the solution, right? That's one way. But then someone else on his team said, well, you know, actually, I'm the son of a carpenter. And, and I, if you could just get me a small hydraulic drill, I could just get those hinges off in like half a second. Be silent. Be easy. There's no risk to anyone. And that idea, just even the idea that there's a more effortless way to achieve your objective is so rarely advocated for or utilized that we don't even, we're just not even asking the question. So if, if hard work equals success, then what happens if you want to be very successful? Well, therefore, you have to work very hard. What if you want to be very, very successful? Now you have to work very, very, very hard and so on. And, and so it goes. And this is what I think accounts for a lot of burnout in otherwise well-intended good people, entrepreneurs, you know, is, is that they've got this faulty idea. And then you look at some of the people that actually are incredibly successful. You look at a, a Warren Buffett. How does he approach it? Does he say, well, I want to I be very, very successful. Therefore, I'm going to, you know, kill myself. Is that his approach? Is that what he says? Is that what he's done? No. He says that their investment strategy borders on lethargy. That's an amazing statement, lethargy. What is, what is that? That's just another word for like laziness, for, for effortlessness. He said, we are not interested in finding seven foot poles to, not poles, to jump over, fences to jump over. We're not looking for investment opportunities. We have to jump seven feet in the air. We're looking for investment opportunities that are one foot high that we can step over. And that is like a huge key to their tremendous success is that they're looking for the things that are clear yeses, that are easy yeses, and that they can that they can go big on because it's just right there in front of them. That's what they're looking for. They distrust the other stuff. There's a different way, and you must find it if you want to escape the level of success you're currently at. If you can't push any harder, don't try to push any harder. <laughs> Open yourself to a new question. How can this be easier? How could this be effortless? What might, how could we make this more enjoyable? These questions open your mind to new answers and new possibilities. How can people let go of the emotional tether that they have to their Puritan work ethic? It's all well and good, me and you sitting here and saying, there's an easier way. You don't need to burn yourself out. But what if it's Chris from seven or eight years ago who has this emotional attachment? It's almost where he gets his sense of self-worth from. He has anxiety mm. when he's not doing that. How mm. do they let go? I was coaching somebody, um, uh, Kim, who's a manager at a university. She's responsible for lots of different uh, teams. And she was just like the type of person you're describing. If she, she felt guilty if she stopped to eat lunch. No, 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 I don't mean stopped. I mean, if she ate lunch, she felt guilty. She was the type of person who she's up at 4 a.m. in the morning 
photoshopping for a young women's activity at church the next day. I mean, she's just like, if she's not exhausted, she feels guilty. I mean, that's, that's who we're talking to here. But I think a lot of people are in that category, even if they're not quite as extreme as her or they don't do it quite the way she does. There is this deep mentality. And one of the things that I would say to you and I said to her is like, well, don't overcomplicate your way out of this. Don't assume that the way out of this deep mindset has to be painful, hard, wrenching, difficult, and all of that. That's just reapplying the same logic that got you into the state. What if you all you have to do is ask a different question? What if that's the that's the difference? And that is what that's what I asked her to do. I said, I said, the next time somebody asks you to do something, just ask yourself. You can write it on a sticky note, you can put it on your some way to remember to ask yourself, look, what would this look like if it was easy? Is there an easy solution? Is there an effortless way of doing this? So she gets a call from one of the professors at the university. He says, look, I'd like you to get your videography team to come and record um, my class this semester. And she just immediately goes into her overachiever, overthinker, overdeliverer mentality. That's well-worn path for her. She, immediately she's thinking, okay, I'll get the whole team involved. They'll go down there. They can, we can get a couple of different angles. We'll edit it all together. We're going to add music. We'll add intros, outros, graphics. We're going to wow him. He's going to love us. He's going to be so impressed. You know, that's what he's go, going for. And then she remembers the one interrupt, the one question. Well, how is there an effortless way to do this? Might, might there be an easier way? And so she put that to him. Well, what, what might be an easy solution? Well, as they talk about it, it turns out that it's just one student who has some athletic commitments, which mean they won't be able to be in every class, but they need this class to graduate. And he's just trying to accommodate this one student for some of the classes. And so the solution they come up with on the phone is that another student will just record it on an iPhone and send it afterwards whenever he misses. And that totally solves it. It hadn't occurred to him, wouldn't have occurred to her, hadn't at that point. And she hangs up and she's just like, what just happened? In 10 minutes, we have solved a problem that would have been four months of work with all those extra bells and whistles. So I actually do think that just inverting the question from why does this have to be so hard or how can I over deliver or how can I, do you just say, well, how can it be easier? What would it look like if it was easy? What, 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 what is an effortless solution to this? And what I will say from my own life, my own life feels way more complicated still than it ought to be. It loads of stuff feels harder than it ought to be. Uh, that's why I wrote the book. I wrote it for me. I wrote it for other people in that situation. That is our life right now. But I also think the other side of it is that every day I'm using these questions now. And I personally find them almost magical. I, I can't, just can't believe how often if I pause and ask the question, something will come forward that just is, would, was always there as an option, but I didn't see it. Um, silly example is uh, at a printer on my desk, I, uh, not on the desk, on the floor in my office over here. Been there two weeks. I like to keep things organized. And, and every time I'd see it, it was just enough complication in my mind about, oh, do you sell it? Do you, do you, do you throw it away? If I throw it away, I have to find a recycling center. I don't know where that is. So 
And there's this whole, that, that all like took two seconds in my head, but it was enough to go, oh yeah, I'm coming back to that later. For two weeks, I'd done that. Because again, all the, all the extra stuff in my head, all that noise. And I asked the question, is there an effortless way? I look outside, there happen to be a couple of workers out there. Uh, I don't know them, but they're just out there. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if they want it. So I walk outside, hey, I've got this printer, it's working, but it's been replaced. Do you want it? Yes. I walk inside, get it, give it to them. Within literally two minutes of asking the question, I don't just have the solution, that solution is, is executed, done. And that, 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 you can say it's a silly example, but a small example, but that is life is made up of those things that are just harder than they ought to be. And we make them harder than they need to be. And it's because we're asking the wrong questions. And if we can change the question, if we can invert it, you'll be amazed at what is possible that isn't possible if you're doing it the harder way. Trying to just bookend what we said there and give people a scalable takeaway from that section. Each of the different solutions that you need are because each situation is different, that the guys that you need to give the printer to aren't the solution to the lady that needs to film the video stuff. But mm -hmm. the, the scalable solution is inverting the question. Instead of That's saying, right. why is this so hard? Why is this so uncomfortable? What would it look like if this was easier? What would this situation yeah. look like if it wasn't so hard? If it wasn't going to be painful, if it wasn't going to be a slog, what would this situation look like? Yes, it is simply... In many instances in your life, when something, when you have something that's expensive that you weren't expecting something to be expensive for something, so somebody gives you some proposal for something that's much more than you were hoping it would be, just ask the question, well, is there an effortless solution? What might be an effortless solution to this problem? That happened to Southwest Airlines, their uh, low-cost carrier. They're trying to be careful on how they spend money. Everyone else at the time is using a, a complex, expensive ticketing system, and it's going to cost them $2 million to install it. They don't want to spend that $2 million, but they're worried that they're going to go out of business if they can't be competitive. In, in, in. And then suddenly somebody says, yeah, but what, what's an easy solution? We said, well, I guess the effortless solution would be we don't care what anyone else thinks a ticket is. We don't care what Continental thinks a ticket is. And they're like, yeah, we don't care. We're not interested in that. And so... They got rid of that complexity, that, un that clutter, by asking that question. And what they came up with is they said, well, we already give people receipts, so we'll just print on the receipt, this is your ticket. And we'll skip the whole $2 million system, all that complexity, all that time, all that effort, just resolve it. It's just done. So the question, yes, the takeaway is ask a better question. Ask an effortless question. And you open yourself up to possibilities and solutions that will come to you that won't otherwise come to you. That That is the takeaway, yes. If you roll it forward over time, if you spend too much time doing effortful, living effortfully, uh, as opposed to effortlessly, you end up with mm -hmm. burnout. And you have a quote in the book that's, burnout is not a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And that is an absolute bar. That's so correct when I think about some of the young entrepreneurs that I know who see it as a rite of passage who see the late nights and the early starts as a rite of passage. And it takes time to get, I don't know whether it's, I don't know whether it's a byproduct of the fact that when you get towards your thirties, you become chronically aware of your own mortality and late nights just annihilate <laughs> you. Um, but um, there is a, a, an awakening, like a, uh, a manopause for the men um, that hmm. occurs around that time. And you think, God, like, this sucks. And I've had those periods. I've had those burnout periods. Um, 
for the type A go getters or the people that like to overwork, how can you deliver them the red pill on burnout? And also, what are some of the signals, the early signals of burnout, and the warning signs that you notice and take heed of? Yeah. So first of all, that last point, one of the one of the trickiest things about burnout is that the closer we get to it, the worse we are at discerning it. And because because the problem with burnout is it's affecting your own ability to think. It changes the way you are experiencing your life. So you're that that's what the research shows. The closer you are to burnout, the less likely you are to actually notice it. Um, so this is <clears throat> so this is one of the reasons that that you sort of need to develop a heightened awareness. Um, things that you can do. I mean, I mean, one test that I like is. Am I use, did I use up more energy today than I can recuperate today? A similar question. Can I, did I use up more physical, emotional energy this week than I can recuperate this week? Because some days you are going to, and even some weeks you're going to. You know, there are rhythms to life. Of course, there are times that there is a sort of big push moment. But you don't want to live your life in that place because then you won't be you won't get to choose when you have to stop it will eventually be chosen for you but you'll also be choosing the highest cost path by the time you stop you just look at what your relationships look like with the people that matter most to you 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 look like look at what your overall health is you look at what your overall life life quality is you won't be happy with the results of that by the time you're forced to stop so I think that's one test about it. I think a second test that I like for burnout is like when you start to resent people. When any request that comes to you just, just irritates you, bothers you. My goodness, just another thing, another thing. That's a good signal that you are burned out. Uh, you, when, once, you know, when, when somebody's moved something in your, in your home or and you can't find the thing that you wanted to find, and that just drives you. You can't believe you're so frustrated about this. You feel impatient and so on. This is a pretty good sign that you're that you're burned out. If you feel like you're using um, a lot of nervous energy, you know that's the fuel that you're using is nervous, sort of anxious energy, uh, stress energy. You know, again, that can help to get you through certain things, but you don't want to be running on that fuel all the time because that has all sorts of um, negative externalities. So, uh, so yeah, those are maybe two or three tests that I think you can use to kind of start to assess, you know, am I, am I, you know, am I, am I on the edge of burnout or even way past it? Have you got any strategies for how people can bounce back from burnout quickly? Well, I think that the, the principle as we should start with is that relaxing is a responsibility. So that's a different frame. It's not like a nice thing to do after the fact. It's like real relaxation is, is as important responsibility as any other venture that you have in your life. Um, what I would recommend that people do on this is that I think that they should start a little list somewhere between 10 and 20 items. And at first, your average overachiever might not even be able to put one thing on that list. But the list is what things relax me. What, are, what is relaxing for me? 
my wife and I have both done this and it's our lists are completely different. It was very helpful for us to have for ourselves, but also for each other. So that if I'm trying to support her, same you could do it with the members of your team. So that if you're trying to create an environment that is it, that supports a proper balance between uh, between work and, and relaxation, that you actually can have signature experiences created for them. So I know so my wife's birthday, for example, or if I'm just saying, hey, you know, I can see she's starting to get a bit burned out. I can look at the list and actually construct an evening or a day or try and, you know, instead of just going, oh, you know, you should take the day off. You should relax. Well, that's quite stressful for overachievers. They don't know what to do with that space. It's not, it's not, that doesn't, that's not going to, you don't want blank space. A lot of people don't. So you actually have to learn relax, re relaxing as its own capability. And as they say, for overachievers, they're, they're more comfortable with setting a goal to run a marathon than they are to take a nap. <laughs> right. Take a nap is a much, is it like, what? I don't know about that. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know how. Yeah, that's the, that's the mission impossible. Um, and, and in fact, is, is one specific thing I think people, you know, if people understood the actual research around the value, the, the return of investment on taking an effortless nap, I think it would be they would lean into it more, more easily. Uh, I, I'm not always great at getting the number of hours of sleep I need at night, but I am like a champion napper. And I'm, I, I, don't, I don't even, honestly, for a long time, I didn't even know that people thought of that as sort of a bit childish or take a nap. And I think that was, I think that's uh, that was like sleep time for my three-year-old. It's like, I, I, I don't know where I picked it up, but I just a hundred percent believe in it. As soon as I feel uh, that sleep pressure building as it does through the day, naturally, um, somewhere in the afternoon, Oh, I'm so happy to go take a nap. I recognize I will be twice as productive in the rest of my day discernment way better my state can be restored even just literally half an hour of lying down yeah i was just talking to somebody the other day and they, they said oh yeah if i ever work from home i i used to say if i ever work from home i'm gonna take a nap every day and in one year of working from home from pandemic they've never done it the opportunity is there now but the mindset is still is still built around some other I would say industrial age view of productivity where we treat ourselves like a, like a, you know, a, a, a mill or a factory. We're, we're neither of those things. We're not a factory. We're, we're, we're humans with biology and, and, and the system needs times of concentration and times of relaxation. And that is optimal performance when you can get those two together. Moving on to the next section, which is effortless action. What's that? Yeah. How does that how does that integrate with where we're at so far? Um, effortless state is just you know always come back to, so that when you're out of that state, you, you as we most of us are most of the time, we just need to keep coming back to it. Physically, oh, I need to I need to take a nap or physically check in. Oh, I need to I need to eat something. I haven't eaten anything. Eat something healthy. Um, you know, that's, that's about the sort of constant adjustment. But as we get into that effortless state, what we want to do is, is to simplify the action itself. So I see, I see a lot of the times that the action itself is not really the problem. The, the problem is getting to it. 
got all these assumptions. It has to be hard. You, you're overcomplicating. You're overthinking and so on. But then when you get to the task itself, people still can approach that in a way that the action is, is, is harder and more overwhelming than it needs to be. So there's a few things here I think that you can do. You can say, you can say, well, let's do it with you. Are you game? Are you game to do you game to you play? Loved it. You love doing this. You did it to me last time. Let's do it again. I did, but I wanted to do it a little differently today. So, so you know, back to this question I asked at the beginning. Okay, what now, starting now in your life, uh, what is something, yep, important game changer, something that you you know you want to get done? You 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 know if you did it especially if you did it consistently, it would, it would make a big impact. It could be business, personal, anything. What's the first thing? Let me think. Uh, write a new lead magnet for my email newsletter. I know, that, I know that if I do that, that it will massively bump the number of subs that I have on my newsletter. I'm already doing the newsletter, so I'm already doing part of the work, and there is a bottleneck there's a, a rate limiting step on the number of subscribers that I've got. If I release a new lead magnet, then, and I, I know what I want to do, I just haven't started because I just think, oh, it seems like a really big task. It's going to take ages. Okay, lead, a lead magnet for what, you, what you're describing is literally a particular type of article? It will be a PDF. An offer. PDF, just a free PDF, downloadable PDF. Sign up to the newsletter yep. and get your PDF. Yep. Got it. Uh and so now that's it. We've already identified that. Now the question is, everything else is about effortless. So the big question, as I've already mentioned, is how could we make this effortless for you? Um, you know, the, some of the questions that could help us answer that question. Um, well, what does done look like? PDF completed, edited, finalized, and uploaded onto landing page, integrated with email client, ready to go. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 it is uploaded and scheduled on your email client. Yeah. Um, what is the first physical physical obvious action you can take? The very first one towards that goal. Open the note in Apple Notes or Notion, which I'm going to create the outline of the content of the lead magnet. Okay, so it's, it's just opening the app. That's the first step. What can you achieve in a 10-minute microburst on that? The, if you spent 10 minutes, the next 10 minutes, you're in there, you've got 10 minutes, what could you achieve? The lead magnet is going to be 100 books that I think everybody should read. And I could go through my existing Amazon shopping list, which is already on the internet, and I could run through that and take off the highlights from there. I've already done some of this work. Yep. Um, so within 10 minutes, you're not going to get all 100 in there probably, but you're going to get, you know, you're going to get what some. number? 20. Some. 20 between 20. 10. I mean, they're there. Yep. I've got there's, there's tons on that list, so it would be pretty easy. Yeah. So um, so next question. So we've, we've identified 20. We've identified a 10-minute thing. Um if you worked on it, is this something you would generally want to work on in one big push? Or is it, if you worked on this, let's say every day, and you were going to add 20 per day over a five-day period, does that feel sustainable to you? Does that feel like, yeah, I, I could imagine doing that in that way? Or is that uncomfortable in some way? 
That would probably be fine. I'd be tempted to batch it in a different way. I'd probably get all 100 listed in one go so that I'm in one mode yep. of thinking. And then the next one will be to actually fill out why I think people need to read this book. And then perhaps another one after that would be getting the Amazon short links and doing that across or sending that to someone in the team and getting them to do that. And then any of the other bit, maybe an intro. So just trying to batch those together. But I think given that they're quite discrete, different tasks, I'm pretty certain I could sit down and blast through and get all of the books listed. And then maybe the big chunk will be writing why I think they're good. So maybe we do, you know, a couple of hours each day or a couple of hours every couple of days for a little while. So, so what I'm exploring with you is, is whether there's a, an upper bound that would be helpful, right? Like the, the, you know, lower bound is that you, that you open this app, right? Like every day you open the app till it's done. Maybe the lower bound even is the 10 minute microburst that we just talked about where you say, okay, for 10 minutes, I'm going to work it. And you literally time yourself with that 10 minutes. But here's the key part is that you have an upper bound and I'm not sure what that is yet for you, but uh... that you say, okay, at this point I'm done because the temptation is, and you already used it, blast through it. I mean, that was the language, right? I'm going to blast through it. Well, I'm, I know you have that capability on days that you don't really have the time, space, energy to do that. You think that's the way to make it happen. So then you go, well, I can't do it today because I can't blast through it. I can't get those hundred done today. So therefore you don't do it. And you're in the situation that you are describing. So if you have an upper bound, and I, I like the timing bound for you on this, because then you say, well, listen, I have podcasts that I'm recording at this time. That is in 20 minutes, but I will, I can succeed at my goal for the day because it's a timed amount of time. No matter how many books I get done or not, it's done by the end of that 20 minutes. That is my goal. So I don't know quite what it is for you with this, but it's an upper bound so that you pace yourself. It's, it's one of the biggest errors, I think, of, of, of the sort of the exhausting path uh, is that people push themselves and power through and what that means is that they just they can only do it for a short burst they can only by day two by day three you you're just like oh, i don't have an hour or two to do on this today so i gotta wait until i have a full hour or two to do it and i have the energy to do it and i know somebody pushed on a project like this the whole weekend they push 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 and then they just like they couldn't even think about that project for two more weeks after that they didn't get it done and they couldn't even think about it because it was too much it was too overwhelming it's just exhausted their mental interest in that subject. And so that's what I would be suggesting for you. It's like a little bit of pacing. Okay. So what's the right pace for you, by the way? What is the upper bound that sounds right? I think any more than an hour in between all of the other stuff that I'm doing, especially for the big chunk, which is writing out the descriptions of the books. I think much more than an hour would probably, I'd start to have a flinch effect away from it. Just to interject on what you said there, it feels like, um, the rev limiter that you have on a car. Mm. So it just, it just allows you to bounce <laughs> off the ceiling. But what you can do as opposed to letting yourself get into that red is you can actually bring that down. And if you're sufficiently experienced with how your ebb and flow of energy works and what you know that you can tolerate without getting into burnout, you can take, okay, I, I don't want to hit burnout which is a particular distance over a particular amount of time, let's rate that down from a, a macro aggregate into a micro daily. And okay, well, okay, so maybe I think 
maybe I think I could get away with adding maybe like half an hour in, or maybe I could get away with adding an hour in. So I like, I like that. I like a lot of what we're going to talk about when we get into the final section is that next action. It's what's the physical thing that you can do. But this is a integrating the what does done look like, which is mm-hmm. super important. Give yourself license to say that you have done the work for today. It gives you more freedom by by putting it into a time constraint. It liberates you from what could be a really difficult piece of work. I might get to 95 books and think, oh, God, I, I need to find the rest of the books. If I'm working for two <laughs> hours, I've worked for two hours. Like, that's two hours of good work. It, I'm not working to a deadline. If there's an outright deadline and it's three days away, this is a little bit different. But when it's, for most people, ongoing tasks that are need to be completed as and is, you're like, well, I've done two hours on it. Should I yeah. not feel satisfied with my two hours of hard work? And by defining done, which I, I absolutely love, you have to decide what done looks like. Um, by doing it within a time window, you always liberate yourself. I feel like this... This insight I've, I've seen from a couple of different people, yourself and some of my friends that have it too, and it mm. is um, the thing that all of those people have in common is they've got quite strong family lives. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like this Supporting is, function. It, it absolutely is. Whereas yeah. I'm sure when you were uh, young and, and didn't have those responsibilities quite so much and were sort of still where I'm at now, where I don't have a, a missus or kids or a dog that's knocking on the door saying, we've got such and such's barbecue tonight. That's when you can just keep nose on grindstone and just continue to go away in a way. So I love that. Define what done looks like. Give yourself a window and use windows of time as um, little mini extrapolated or reverse extrapolated uh, burnout indicators, and use that as a as a little rev limiter. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think for you, I'm 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 not saying an hour. You said an hour before you flinched is what you described. Like we have an hour more, I start to flinch with that. I think for you, it's like half an hour is tops on this assignment. You can do a lot in half an hour. I know you can. You, you, if you start doing this within a half an hour, you'll have a whole thing. And that's fine. You, you leave it there and you move on. The, the, you know, you see, that the benefit. I took on a big project a, a six months ago. And I knew if I forced it, I could get it done. No, actually, I thought if I forced it, I could do it in maybe three months. But I didn't. I said, no, it's going to give yourself the time. It's a six-month project. It was a major project. Uh, at the end of that six months, I got it done. It felt effortless. The journey was effortless. It was really rewarding and really great. And there's other people I know that would like to do it, but it's overwhelming to even start. And other people I know that started, pushed too hard at the beginning, exact same challenge that we're taking. And and they're, they're halfway through now. It's still taken six months, but they pushed hard for three months, didn't get it done, and now have semi-given up. And, and so this power of pace is not obvious to overachievers. We want to get it all done now. We're going to force it. We're going to push it. You pace yourself. You go slow to go smooth, and then smooth turns out to be fast. That's the military phrase, right? Go smooth. Go slow to go. Slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. So that's on the pacing thing. But for you, now this is a good transition for effortless results and the distinction. Because effortless action in the book is really about how you take one project, one activity, and you make it as easy as possible to complete. There's a very practical section in the book. The third section of the book 
is about how can you use effort in a certain way to make the results you want flow again and again and again. So that's the difference between linear results, that is one effort equals one reward, versus residual results, which is you you maybe even put in a little more effort at the beginning, takes a little more to set it up, but it flows to you again and again and again after that. And so I'm like going to give you the challenge because I've just started to learn this myself of a one-click solution for what you gave to me, this lead magnet article. Right now, we've talked about how to make it simpler for you to do it. But what I want to know is could you construct it to the point You've already got members of your team. You already talked about that. But could you construct it to the point where all you have to do is one click? It's a huge challenge. It's it's way beyond where you are right now with it. So it's not that you're going to be able to do that immediately, but that you construct the right people in your team and you empower them in the right way. That when you say, listen, I want to do a lead magnet article on the top 100 books, that they have access to your Amazon page yourself, themselves that they can go through and curate all of that yourself and bring to you 120 books. And, and, or, or even, they, even they look at your podcast, who you've had on, what they know about you. They've done all of that evaluation for you. They bring you 100 books. They've already written a few thoughts about each of them based on what you've said on your podcasts. They've done all of that work so that they bring it to you. Now, it, based on my own experience with this, you, you probably have to do this a few times on a few projects before they know your voice, know what you're doing, know how you so that, but again, there could be a point where in the future you have the lead magnet and it's a one click solution. They send it to you and all you're doing is approve or not. And the whole thing has been done. So that's, that's the difference between effortless action and what I'm describing as effortless, effortless results. And that is the, for me personally, the hugest thing in this book. It's like I spent too much of my life trying to make it better, easier, simpler to get a thing done myself and not nearly enough time focused on how do you get results just to flow to you, whether you're sleeping or not, whether you're thinking about it or not. And that, that, that's the difference between being able to make a 2x contribution in your life and a 10x or 100x is if you can construct systems hire the right people, get the right teams in place, empower them in the right way, they can produce results while you're sleeping or not. Uh, you, you know, whether, whether you're focused on it today or not, whether you're taking the day off, whether you're relaxing today, stuff still happens. Amazing things can happen. And, and so I, I, I just put that to you. How can you get to a one-click solution? That would require me to finally make the decision to hire an assistant, a full-time EA, which I haven't done yet, I don't think it's too ridiculous. All of the structures are there. The root content that the team would need is there. Um, one thing that you may be proud of me for is I've now outsourced the production of pretty much all of my social media content. So we have these mm-hmm. beautiful trailers that are being made by social media guy Joe, uh, who has come on full-time now. And he's he's just phenomenal. He listened to the show for, for ages, so he understands my voice. He's doing recreationally what he needs to do for his research for work in any case. So today he listened to the Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson episode on the route down to London to go see his girlfriend. And while he's driving down, I'm getting voice notes from him saying, dude, like this bit at 13 minutes and 45 seconds, like I'm, I know what I'm going to do with that and do this. And it's just, I don't need to, it's just hands off. He just makes this beautiful content from all of the stuff that I already do. Then he takes my newsletter 
because he gets delivered the newsletter every week. And then he repurposes that into tweet storms for the following week because he knows that it's timely and he knows that it is in my voice. And then he, every time he reads the newsletter. So that is, um, that's my equivalent. I probably would have said to you a year ago, I want to be able to scale my exposure on social media. And you would have said what would have been a one-click solution. For me now, it's, it's maybe a voice note in a WhatsApp chat solution. So technically one, it is one, one click. There's maybe some words, but Hey mate, got this new episode coming out with Greg. Um, really think that we can like dig some great content out of this. Just put it on your list for next week. Beep done. And it'll appear and then it'll appear on the internet. Um, so that is one of the things, something that it's a great, no, go, go carry on. Just something that is probably lurking in the back of some people's minds is they don't, they don't have a team. Or maybe they're a one-man band, or maybe the tasks that they have to do they can't outsource to other people. What's the effortless results solution for someone that can't outsource? Well, effortless results is you know the can you you can apply it in any situation that you're in. Um, it, it, it's really just to do with the mindset. Um, I mean, in your particular instance. Uh, you know what would a what would a one click solution look like for you without hiring people? Is that the question you're asking me? No, for other people, not for me particularly. Um, so you just mean in general, how can a person achieve eff- residual effortless results if they don't just have a team that they can hire? That's what you're asking. Yeah, I mean, I would say that no matter what somebody's situation is economically they ought to lean into the idea of, you know, of network. Uh, I, I know when I first came to the United States, I mean, I literally had no money at all. So it wasn't like I could have solutions that looked like, oh, I'll hire that person. So exactly as you're saying, that definitely wouldn't have been an option. But I did reach out to, I, I built, started building it, you know, just I would knock on people's doors, so to speak. I would call them up and just network and tell people this is what I'm trying to achieve. I want to teach. I want to write. And so by, by getting to know people beyond your normal group, you are, you know, to, to say it this way, I had um, Benjamin Hardy on the what's essential podcast. And he said, he just wrote a book called who not how awesome episode. And I really enjoyed that. Thank you, Chris. I, I really like that too. I've walked away kind of, changed by that myself and again aware of how often i was doing you know making my own action easier rather than oh just find somebody that there there is a huge network of people now you certainly don't have to be hiring someone full-time but taking networking seriously uh so that you can start to think about how you can serve them maybe the way that you will serve other people and create value for them is in, is introducing them to someone else in your network and so you you are still serving them you're you're still creating an exchange of value and that's all money is is an exchange of value so even if you don't actually have pounds of dollars and so on you still can create value for people you can still make yourself wealthier you can still uh, connect with through other value creation and and as you're doing that I think you are still looking for people who follow what um, Warren Buffett. He has these three these three words. 
they all start with I. So I call it the three eyes test. Now it's like who you're looking to work with is people that have high integrity, high intelligence and high initiative. And I wish I had had that test 20 years ago. That, that, that's such a simple, clear test. And so I just look now for people that are high, high in all three eyes. And when I find them, I, I just, it's just so, such a pleasure to work with them because you don't have to worry and you're not, well, you know, integrity issues. I don't know if they're going to be honest with me. They're going to say one thing and do something else. I mean, that's exhausting if you're working with somebody in that capacity. If you find somebody that's high intelligence, that means they can figure things out. It means that there's high processing abilities. Uh, I don't, I don't mean what their resume says they went to school on. I mean, can they do stuff? Are they capable? Uh, and then the third, in some ways, it's the thing I most long for is high initiative because that's, that's so much more effortless if you're working with somebody that's got high initiative because effort, really what effort is, is mental exertion. It's having to think about something. With your article, it's like you have to think, um, you know, think about which articles to get. Think about what you want to say about each of these books. Think about... You know, all of that is, that's the effort, it's mental exertion. If you've had some with high initiative, they're doing the thinking for you. So, I mean, I suppose I've just given a list of, of how to find people that you want to work with, but I'm, I'm just wanting to distinguish that you don't have to pay the person. You certainly don't have to hire them full time. And that's, that's a more unusual step for people, especially as they're starting out. Uh, but there's so many services available now that weren't before. You can go on Fiverr. You can go somewhere else. Somebody that a very low price point. You can test. You can see they, is this a good fit uh, as, the, as you're as you're starting, you know, launching your business. Um, I suppose the only other thing I wanted to say about effortless results is that um, is that you, you can apply it. I mean, I'll give you another entrepreneurial application. Is a way you learn. Uh, if you learn as like, there's two different ways of learning. One way of learning is what, what you were almost, almost all of us have been taught in school, which is here's the content. It's going to be a test. You're going to be tested on approximately this stuff. So review that stuff, try and memorize that stuff, try and re, you know, reproduce that for a moment. That's not, I'm not like all negative about that. You are going to learn if you do that, but it is limited value. Because you are really learning something once to apply it once. You know, you memorize the stuff, you go take the test. That is the, your reward for having learned it. And then you forget it because it's served its purpose. That is linear learning. Um, residual learning is completely different. I remember Elon Musk was once interviewed and asked, I mean, it was a bit of a leading question, but he was basically asked, look, how have you learned so much so fast? Because what people don't know about Musk is that he, you know, before he started SpaceX and Tesla, he had no background in, in mechanical engineering. Just think of that. Uh, he had no background in, in you know, in, in rocket science. So people don't know that. They assume that that was his background. He, he didn't know anything about those subjects. Well, exactly. He certainly didn't have degrees in them. And so he has to, he is, he is managed to upgrade his thinking you know enormously uh in order to be able to then not just be in those fields but in fact uh, you know push the limits and expand the knowledge within those fields 
And he was asked, well, how have you, how have you managed to do that so fast? And so, and he said, he said, well, I like to think about this as a semantic tree. He said, he says, knowledge is a semantic tree. And he means by that, that the trunk of the tree are the first principles, the things that the core principles of this new industry. He says, you've got to get really clear on that. If you can get the trunk of the the understanding of, of the, the if you can get the principles clear once you have a structure to add all the other learning to now that's where he's saying it's a tree you've got the trunk and then the branches and the leaves you can add little new things you learn onto a structure you have learned and are confident in but what i want to add to his answer is that what it really does if you can get to the principles that you like if you can understand the principles of whatever you're trying to do, you can apply it hundreds and hundreds of times into the future. And so that's an example of like you invest once to understand it deeply, but then you can apply it in a thousand other situations. You don't need money to do that. You can achieve that result simply by saying, okay, I'm going to study this, but I'm looking for the, the, the core principles so that I can adopt them, absorb them into my mindset, uh, and then be, have have, you know, same, same as Munger, you talked about, maybe it was before we started the interview, but the idea that, that you've got to get worldly wisdom that you get if you've understood the principle deeply, you can apply it in smart ways in whatever entrepreneurial venture you're pursuing. What are some of the most important principles that you use? Oh, that's a good question. Um, one principle for me is well the principle is that if you want to be a hundred times more successful in life you need to be a hundred times more grateful um as soon as you say the word gratitude i think people go oh yeah yeah i think i've heard that before and it's like the the, the they say that because they they haven't even scratched the surface of it. If they react that way, they think, "Oh yeah, I've, I mean, I've I've done a little gratitude in my life, and it makes me feel a little better." And it's like, "Yeah, that isn't it at all." If you can be grateful in everything, in everything that happens to you, uh, you will get a hundred x return of like the results you want in life. I, I I don't even hesitate to say that. We gratitude is gratitude will make Gratitude probably is one of the key themes that runs like a golden thread through effortless state action and results. Um, if you can be one of the tactics for this um, developed after getting to know BJ Fogg of tiny habits. Um, and he, he develops these, uh, these habit recipes for the Stanford design behavior lab and uh, a, a habit recipe in its simple fo simplest format is after I X, then I will Y. And for this practice, uh, I have said, okay, after I complain, I will say something I'm thankful for. And what I noticed when I first started that is I complain a lot more than I realized. <laughs> like I really couldn't believe it. Cause I think of myself as being quite positive and being quite grateful and, and optimistic and those things. But I just was amazed. I just, I just was like all day long, just complaining about things. Walk into the room. Oh, you know, children, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why, you know, just 
check, check with Anna. Well, this meeting took longer than I thought, and this thing happened. And this is what I'm leading with. As soon as you add on, like I wasn't, I didn't say, okay, I'm going to eliminate all complaining in my life. That seemed overwhelming. But every time you complain, you just say something you're thankful for, say something positive afterwards. And, and we started then after, after just, it had an amazing force about it. It just immediately had an impact on everyone I would talk to. Just they, they, their life was better. They would be, they would be more energized. They would talking, enjoy talking to me a bit more because it's not, you know, no one wants to talk to someone who's complaining. You know, they, they want to talk to someone who's got, who's grateful and grateful for them. And it just started this whole positive, self-fulfilling, like cycle of good. Um, and so even with our children, sometimes we'll play the game and, and they'll say, I remember my son one time saying, after he complained, okay, something you're grateful for. He <laughs> said, oh, I'm so grateful that my dad is making us play this game. You know, just like that, like sarcastic gratitude. And uh, well, that's the thing about gratitude is you can't beat it, is that we all laughed. It immediately changed the feeling. And we, we, were, already, we were already in the positive state. And so it just made it easier to then carry on with everything else in life that we wanted to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could really go a long time on this, but like you can't overdo this principle. It's good. It's the right. It's the. It's the state to be in in good times and bad. If things are really, really hard right now, somebody listening to this is really hard. Gratitude will help you. If somebody is in a state of amazing success, right, which definitely these seasons come for people, they can have more good happening to them. But there's a huge risk when those things start to be good. You start to become arrogant. You start to be full of yourself. You start, you're still comparative, massively comparative because there's always someone to look to. So always someone who's got more followers, more bigger podcasts and b b bigger book, more money. More, there's always something. So, so being more successful doesn't suddenly make you more happy. Um, it's great threat. In fact, success. So being great, great, grateful in times of success is a great antidote to the, to the sort of the pride cycle of life where we get too full of ourselves so in good times and bad gratitude is like the the optimal state and and if i had to really say simply what i think the effortless state is i think this is it it's a state of gratitude and and it's uh there's a whole theory by barbara fredrickson called the broaden and build theory where she's identified that basically state produces better relationships and better results rather than the other way around People think if I have great results and I have great relationships, then I'll, then I'll be in a good positive state. And it's exactly opposite. You change the state and it starts to change the relationships and the results you're producing around you. And this is why I think it's just come back to it again and again. And I can summarize this principle. I should have started with this because this is a best way of saying it. This is the principle. If you focus on what, on what you lack, you'll lose what you have. And if you focus on what you have, then you'll get what you lack. That's the principle. I love it. I think it was you that told me the last time that we spoke uh, about an example that was very similar to that. And it stuck with me for so long, just thinking about the effect that being grateful has on us, thinking about just how much of a, it's so polarized to so much bad thinking. 
so much of the malaise and the ambient anxiety and the external comparison game and the I could be here and all of it goes away. It's every time that I learn a little bit more about it, and you said it before, it's like, yeah, 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 gratitude. Yeah, journals on the morning pages. Yeah, 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 I've heard it. Um, <laughs> and every time that someone else comes back up, I had Susanna Hallinan on the podcast, the happyologist, positive psychology expert. Mm. She's like episode 32. So she was 10% deep into this journey. And she said, happiness is built upon a foundation of gratitude. Without gratitude, you cannot have happiness. And <laughs> still now, episode 32 coming back to, to bite me in the ass. Um, before you go, I want to go back to something that we actually spoke about before we started recording. You talked about the courage to be rubbish. Mm. And particularly why I love it is that rubbish is a word only British people are going to understand. <laughs> so every American that reads it's going to go, what's rubbish? Does he mean trash? <laughs> yeah i love it for that reason too that it's uh that it's a uh, s- such a such a nice british word Anglicized, I, yeah yeah i love it for that reason too yeah so i've got to comment on what you just said though about like that just reminds me of of, of, of another phrase that, that benjamin hardy used when when he was on the podcast and he said it was based on a book i think he hasn't he's co-authoring but it hasn't out yet but it's it's on this principle of it's the have gap, isn't are it? You, are you in, yeah, he says, are you in the the gap or the gain? That's it. I can't wait, Ben. The gain? Ben, if you're listening, I listened to that episode, <laughs> and it's one of those things where an author drops a book that they're going to bring out, and this concept was so interesting, and the book's still not here. So me and you are on the same team here. We're both pissed off that Ben hasn't hurried up and written it. <laughs> exactly. Get on with it now, Ben. So... So this just on that, his, his point about it, so it just supports what you were just saying entirely, is that like if you want to be happy, you need to be in the game. You have to look at what progress have I made, what's gone right, what, who have I become that I've grown. It's like you look at the progress if you want to be happy. If you want to be unhappy, you just look at the gap. And that's it. You can probably be successful either way, but you definitely will not be happy if you're looking at the gap all the time. And so it's about a ratio question. What percentage of your life are you in the gap? What I haven't achieved yet, what I haven't accomplished, what I haven't become, and how much of you, the time are you looking at what you have achieved and have succeeded and, and so on. The gain or the gap, I think, is a great summary of what, you know, what we're trying to talk about here. But the good news is about what we're saying about state today is that the moment you get into an effortless state, the moment you are in a grateful state, for example, you immediately are not in a fearful, angry, grudging, comparative state. It's instant. You can only be in one state in a moment. So, so the moment you're grateful, even where my son is sort of, yeah, sarcastically grateful, it's already happened. It's already moved. And of course, any, in any moment, you could go back to complaining and so on. But, but we, we, we just, we've been emphasizing it just as a family just this last, this last couple of days, this week, uh, spring break for us. And, uh, and so I, we've upped the ante. It's like, yeah, you can criticize, complain, but after three things you're thankful for. And it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that, that it works. It just works. 
they start getting into arguing about anything. I mean, you can argue about anything in life, can't you? It doesn't, it's the most ridiculous things you get all focused on. And it's what does it is it brings the whole state of the, the culture that you're in, the environment you're in gets bring down. You've got some of this toxic on your team. It just brings everybody down. It's every, but as soon as you have that person starting to say something they're thankful for, it re-energizes the room. People just start smiling and laughing. It's an amazingly fast fix. Do you now, know what? You, sorry, I'm going to I'm go gonna on, have to yeah, go on. Now. Yeah, we'll riff on this. Keep riffing on this. So I started doing gratitude journaling probably about four years ago, something like that, three or four years ago. And what I found was my natural state wasn't massively grateful. I think if you haven't mm. done formal gratitude practice, it's actually quite weird. Like to do it, mm. if you're not naturally, if that's not your inclination, and if you're a, mm. a you know, a bloke from the, the north of the UK, then that perhaps <laughs> might... You're saying this isn't, this isn't the normal thing. Yeah, you're saying well, just, this isn't the normal thing. You know, that's interesting. So what I found was that after a while, when I, it's supposed to only take three minutes in the morning and three minutes at night, but when I got to the three great things that happened to me today section... Yeah, it was taking ten minutes because I couldn't think of anything. And then what? Oh, really? What I found over time was that I, during the day, was finding things to be grateful for mm-hmm. as a gift to my future self that night, so that I didn't mm-hmm. feel like an idiot when it came time for me to write them <laughs> down. So actually, formalizing formalizing the gratitude made the present experience of things in the moment different as well, because it it made me accountable to myself i was like look i need i need to have this thing and i think that's that little story i often use that as a justification for a formalized practice now you've actually managed to um formalize the practice into a way that rides the crest of now that's actually it's Mm -hmm. it's always happening but an equivalent would be to to have some sort of accountability whatever it might be the accountability can be your wife or it can be can be a diary or it can be something else but you need those triggers yeah, and I, I, I subscribe to, all, to everything you just said. Uh, I, I, I've been doing a gratitude journal too daily. I do it. I do it from, I, it's like mental health for me. It's like no matter, like I really need it to do it at night. And I'm amazed at how forgetful I can be. And I'll sit there, okay, what, 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 what are the big things I'm grateful for today? And in that process, at first, I can say not just, oh, I don't know what to write. I just forget that that morning, that same morning, something great happened at 9 a.m., 10 a.m. And I, some meeting, some event, some news, something great happened. And I just couldn't even remember it yeah. the same day when I come to write about it. So the practice, I think, is enormously important. Something that I used to do every week before the pandemic, I had it built into my routine, Um was uh, actually it was a church thing i would do it there which isn't great but i would do it at church i had like a and 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 then pandemic no no one's going no one's meeting no one's doing so that removed that routine out of my life and just recently i've got back to doing it each week where you summarize it for the week and i've been really surprised the research is supports this that that you'll get a bigger bump of benefit if you do gratitude lists on a weekly basis than even on a daily basis. I do both now. I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all, but but doing it on the week, what that does is you get to sense, I think, a, a bigger set of progress. You get to see a, a bigger sense of, wow, yeah, look at all those things. And they, they added up and look at this. The, the, so you have a, a more uh, satisfying sense of, 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 of progress. I think yes to all of these. 
you, you, I don't know that you can overdo this principle. I, 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 don't, I don't see it. I believe thoroughly that if you want to achieve a hundred times the results you have in your life, you just, you just say, okay, I'm going to be that much more Ramp grateful. Ramp up the gratitude. To, yeah, to everyone, to everything, in the bad things too. When, the, when things happen that are bad, well, I'm, thank, I'm glad. I, I've done this before. I'm, I'm thankful that I survived this thing today. I'm, I'm thankful that this thing is done and over. I'm thankful that somebody, um, this happened yesterday, somebody, somebody sent me a, a private message on, on LinkedIn that was negative. It's like pretty harsh, actually, about something I just posted. And, and I, when I come to write about that, I'm thankful that they wrote to me and said this thing, you know, said something that was critical. And sometimes as I'm writing for the things you wouldn't necessarily normally think to be grateful for, I don't know what I'm going to say for why. I'm thankful this happened because <laughs> yeah, it's almost an act of faith to write the first sentence because you don't know why. But in the moment, you start to go, yeah, because because I, I hadn't thought about that angle before. I'm not sensitive enough to that. And so I was able to, which I did, rewrite the post that I'd just done with more context to it. And even though I didn't in, enjoy in the first moment of that, it was teaching and it was an opportunity. And being grateful for it just means that you see the, the learning and the benefit from it. I mean, you can't control so many of the things that happen to you in life. But if you can be grateful in whatever comes, the good and the bad, I mean, you, you, you're like, it's like a superpower. I mean, a person who can turn a negative into a positive can never be defeated. That's what the effortless state gives you. Is you, you, whatever comes, fine. The next big challenge, it's all right, because we know how to turn it into something good. Do you know what it feels like? So people use Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile principle um, for things like this, but I actually don't think that that's necessarily perfectly correct. I actually think that this feels a lot, not softer, it feels more fluid than that. And a good example of this actually is what's happening, what will be happening right now as we're recording this. So um, I had Jordan Peterson on the show last night. Earlier on this week, Marvel Comics featured someone that looks suspiciously like his philosophy as the um, principles beneath Red Skull, the magical super Nazi that's the enemy of Captain America. So basically, mm -hmm. ta Coates, that was the, the particular author of the, the comic book, was saying Jordan Peterson is, uh, he has some analogies between this, his philosophy and that. Um, so today, Jordan has released a bunch of Hail Hydra, which was the, the thing from Captain America, which looks like the Hydra head from above, but he's changed it into a lobster and put Hail Lobster. He's released them on posters and T-shirts that are limited edition and all the proceeds go to charity. And he put a tweet out yesterday that had 40,000 likes on it, something like that. So what he's done is he's taken something which has happened and said, okay, well, how? not only how can I perhaps deal with this, but how can I find gratitude that this is now an opportunity for me to do it? And yeah, there's some particulars with regards to his platform that permit him to have more degrees of freedom with things like this. But presumably somebody lower down the the status hierarchy or the um the clout hierarchy their challenge would similarly be down regulated in kind so yeah seeing stuff like that when people take something that ostensibly should be quite a bad day being called out by the biggest comic on the planet for being the underlying philosophy behind a magical super nazi 
probably doesn't rank on every author's like this is a this is a good day. Yeah. But now yep. it seems really charming. The, the based on what I'm seeing online, it looks like the public opinion's massively in his in his favor and whatever his chosen charity, some homeless homeless children in Canada something, they're gonna get just some insane amount of of donations. So yeah, that's a for a, a tacit example there. Right, courage to be rubbish. What does the courage to be rubbish mean? Yeah, courage to be rubbish is um, well. I, I've got to share a story about it. The the there's a British industrialist Henry Kramer's 1959. He wants to support and accelerate progress on um, man, a human powered flight. This is like 50 years after the, the Wright brothers have, have actually successfully flown in, a, you know, in an engine-powered uh, plane, but no one's done human-powered flights. So basically a bike inside of a, of a plane, and he thinks, <laughs> he thinks this is going to be doable. I mean, this is only like 10 years before uh, you know, Neil Armstrong is on the moon, so it doesn't seem crazy to him that they can do this. So he sets this thing, 50,000 pounds, quite a lot of money, even now, but it's, it's a lot in 1959, go. Uh, all sorts of teams get involved, well-funded, uh, you know, impressive brains, all this. And for 17 years, they fail. Just no, just nothing. Enter Paul McCready, who comes in. He's in debt. He doesn't have money for a team. Uh, he has just basically his friends and family. In fact, he has his young son become his test pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, what am and, I doing uh, today? No, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry, son. Yeah. Just keep your helmet on. It's going it's to be all right. It's going to be all right, son. <clears throat> so he's staring at the problem. Why have not people been able to make more progress on this? And he suddenly realizes everyone's been trying to solve the wrong problem. They're all trying to build these really beautiful machines, elegant, you know, wooden ribs, plastic, casings, all this, just, just beautiful things, great teams, great minds, all this in order to, you know, they have to, they have to do this half a mile flight, two mile flight, something around these two pylons without stopping. And that's what they're focused on. And he goes, no, it's exactly opposite. What you need is an ugly as they come thing that can crash and be rebuilt cheap and fast. That's that's the real problem to be solved. If we can solve that, then we'll be able to learn so much faster and then be able to figure out how to do this. So they built this thing totally ugly, looks, looks amateurish. Uh, it was really light. Uh, it would, they, they go, they, they try to fly it. It would crash. They just grab some broom handle, uh, you know, stick it back on. And uh, within five minutes, they'd be back up in the air. He said that the, the, the competitive teams would take six months from that sort of setback. They'd try to fly the plane. It would crash. Okay, ship it back. We'd take it back to the university, take it back to the institute. Let's rebuild what we're doing. Six months of, of, of downtime between their learning cycle uh, compared to him with five minutes. They, they, they would maybe have more crashes in one day than some of their competitors would have in the lifetime of the machine. And so it was on their 223rd attempt that they succeeded. They won the first Kramer Prize and went on to win two years later across the English Channel uh, and won the second Kramer Prize for £100,000. I mean, this is like this huge breakthrough. But the breakthrough wasn't 
and aeronautics breakthrough primarily. The primary breakthrough was that you've got to make failure as cheap as possible. And, and, and there's a whole variety of ways that you can do that. I mean, you can make, you can make failure cheaper by protecting it from the critic in your head. Is just the way you talk about your own performance when you make a mistake. Um, when, when you can, I have a friend, super, you know, high capability, high intelligent person. He did his JD, uh, maybe JD MBA. I can't remember now. At Stanford, went on and did another PhD at Princeton. I mean, he's super smart. Teaches Spanish to other people, and he just says, "Listen, you, you get. It's like you got to imagine you have a thousand beads." And every time you make a mistake trying to speak Spanish, you get to take a bead out. And once you've done a, when you've got a thousand beads out, you're going to be, you're going to be level one mastery in Spanish. You just got to go out there and make mistakes. Whereas some people want to, oh, I've got to learn it, get really good before I ever use the, what I know. The courage to be rubbish is it's in that that you learn. Everything starts rubbish. Every masterpiece started rubbish. They just started. They had the courage to do, you know, the bad version of the article. And so many people, I meet so many people who say, oh, I want to write a book. I mean, but this idea they have in their heads, I think, the, the, they're trying to do, do the wrong thing. They're trying to solve the wrong puzzle. They're trying to be perfect out the gate. These like perfect, beautiful machines. Or they, they, they think, oh, everything I do needs to be, oh, I call like baby Yoda, baby Yoda perfect right from the beginning. It's all, it's just all cute and polished and so on. But actually, like at Pixar, for example, to play a little on that that metaphor that they they believe in and articulate ugly babies we we love ugly babies <laughs> because the first the first you know the first sketch of any idea the sketch is bad the idea is bad you know that you can go and see i've seen them at pixar when i've worked with the company they they have enshrined these early versions of Toy Story and so on. And they, they are rough and they do look bad, genuinely. They're, they're saying, of course, we want that. You've got to protect those. You've got to look after those things uh, so that you can ever get into, into you know, better performance later. So you want to make failure as cheap as possible. Actually, one of the things that we've talked about already, just following through that thread, is, is one way to make, make failure cheaper. Is just be grateful along the way. I uh, I just um, was talking to John um, uh, Acuff, who's just come out with a book called Soundtracks, and he's basically saying we have all these negative soundtracks in our mind that get in the way, and we have to choose a better, you know, better playlist and play it a lot so they become our, our most played soundtracks. And one of the soundtracks that he said, I just find it here. He said he's picked up this: you either succeed or you have a story. And I love that, right? Like you, you either succeed or you have a story, meaning, like so he gave me this story. He said that when he was early starting off and trying to market, he, went, he, he hired space at a conference he wasn't even speaking at. And he just thought, he just had this idea that because of his success of his blog and so on, that loads of people would come and meet him there and whatever. So he got a thousand flyers made up that he would hand to be when they arrived. And he sits there, and he's expecting all these people and literally two people come. And one of them is a friend of his that he knew was coming. And the, I think the other one was the person he brought with him. And so he has a photograph of this now. And he's put it on, put it on his blog. This is from years back. But he just tells the story. And, and that's what he's saying. He says it's one of the most popular blogs he's ever written. 
you either succeed when you take an action or you, you have a story. And so this is all about trying to make it cheaper to for us so you can fail, but it becomes cheaper. I said a little little differently. It's how to make life into an asymmetric bet so that there's l low downside and high upside. And if you can make your life like that, if you can, again, to use the phrase, if you can make it a little more effortless, then, then you can keep taking action. My mother was especially good at this. You know, she has, we, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but she was really good at encouraging, uh, well, try it. What's the worst that can happen? It's okay. And so it reduced the emotional burden of, well, what if I do this and I fail? I'll look stupid and I'll be terrible. I was worse than dying. And a lot of people feel like that. They just rather die than, than look stupid or do something. And, uh, and I, just didn't, I just didn't grow up with that burden. <laughs> and I'm sure that meant that I actually did look a bit more stupid than, you know, than the average person more times. I didn't care. And I don't care now either. And so it means it, what I think it produces, you know, speaking from personal experience for a moment, is that it produces a sense of I'm game for that. Let's try it. Let's go. Let's go. And then we'll learn. And we'll, we can pivot fast, but we're going to learn. Let's go. And you're you, you just, you just not going to learn or progress if you're so worried about being perfect that you, don't, that you can't even take the first step. Imagine if a baby really literally somehow was embarrassed that they, the first attempt they have to move, to crawl, to sit up, to stand, they, they, they were being punished for that. Imagine how ridiculous that would be. Uh, they, they get praised for it, encouraged for it. We need to do that for ourselves. We need to do it for other people if we want progress. And we do. And if we want progress to be even easier, which we really do. What I love is the idea of seeing failure as the end in itself and almost the thing that you're, that you're aiming to get to. Not that the outcome I want from this experiment is failure, but that r you repurpose failure, you rebrand it as, okay, failure is not a bug. It is a feature of this undertaking that I'm going through now. And every single time that I fail, one of those beads comes off on the, on the, the, the podcast string or on the, I want to be a dancer or I want to be a rugby player or I want to go to the business. I want to get an MBA or I want to get a PhD or I want to get a college degree. I want to be, get a job. I want to do whatever. Every time that I don't get a job, because you're going to get rejected from more interviews than you're going to be accepted because you're only ever going to be accepted once. Um, right. Every time that you get rejected, okay, cool. So what, what, did I, what did I learn from this? What a privilege it is. How fortunate am I to be able to now be even better than that? And it removes the emotional attachment that we have to the desire to always be correct and moving forward and looking cool and not blundering and falling over. It's like, no, 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 no. Everybody's blundering and falling over. Blundering and falling over is, it's built into the source code of what you're going to do. In fact, you're probably going to blunder and fall over far more than you're going to succeed. And every single time that that happens, you can be grateful for it. You can be thankful for the fact that you now get to come back and perhaps be a little bit better at avoiding that blunder. When I was reading that courage to be rubbish section it reminded me of a tweet a couple of tweets actually that i saw this year and this one's from tiago forte and he says a paradoxical thing about people who consistently choose the most high leverage activity 
is that efforts have a rough-edged, half-assed quality because polishing <clears throat> things to perfection is a low-leverage activity. <clears throat> and someone replied to it and said, perfectionism is a nice way to hide from shipping at a pace necessary to find what works. Well, well that's exactly it, right? Um, the co-founder of LinkedIn, uh, Reid Hoffman, first of all, he says, if you aren't embarrassed by the first product you ship, then you waited too long. Um, and, and he applies that not just in sort of startup strategy, but he uh, hired a, a new chief of staff, um, Ben, and uh, he, he said to Ben, I'm comfortable with a 10 to 15% foot fault rate. Uh, if it allows us to move fast, I accept that you will make decisions plenty of times that wouldn't be what I would do in that situation, but I want us to be moving fast. That's the, that's the value. And, and Ben is on record saying, well, that just freed me, just liberated me to go forward, to not be so hesitant, not waiting all the time. And, and that's really what one of the things that people that I think keeps people back from doing what's most essential in their lives, doing the things that really matter to them, that they feel actually a pull towards, is that they have another counterweight pulling them back, which says, yeah, but don't do anything stupid and don't do anything that, that, would, that could make you uncomfortable or don't do anything that could be a failure along the way. And so then they just don't do anything. They don't go anywhere. And, and, and that, I think, is a far bigger risk. I mean, we're talking about progress, progress over perfectionism every day of the week i love it greg it's been an absolute pleasure having you on effortless is out on april 27th april 27th the link to either pre-order or purchase right now will be in the show notes below where should people go you've got so much stuff going on at the moment where's best for people to keep up to date with everything uh, i think if they sign up for the newsletter they'll definitely not lose anything we have a one minute wednesday um, you can sign up at gregmcewen.com, uh, G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com. Also, essentialism.com. That's where the whole academy is getting launched. There's a 21-day challenge that just tries to make it really micro bite sized masterclasses each day, but it's just like little vignettes to help people make progress on what really matters most to them. Uh, and there's, there's a whole series of classes coming there that, that people can take and be part of. Uh, I, I think I would. I think I would go with those. Greg McEwen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Chris.